Well, it's great to see you guys today. Uh, we are continuing our Stranger Bible series, and we've looked at some super, super strange stories. And today is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible. It is found in the book of 2 Kings. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 2 Kings. We can bring it up on the screen back there if you guys uh, got it. This is an awesome passage. So this is talking about the prophet Elisha. So not Elijah. This is the prophet who was trained, in a sense, by Elijah to succeed him. And it says, from there, Elisha went up to Bethel. As he was walking along the road, some boys came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy! Which is a serious fear for me, because if you look at my dad, like, this is coming, right? So I, I feel this deep in my core. Get out of here, baldy! He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears, as they do, came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the boys. And he went on to Mount Carmel and from there returned to <coughs> Samaria. This is your, you remember as a child, this is your normal Sunday school passage, right? For some of us, we're probably like, I don't really get the big deal. Bears aren't that scary. I mean, after all, they don't really beat anybody, right? Oh. Uh, I need Wayne up here, you know? <laughs> no, but this passage has been a subject, especially among people who want to criticize the Bible, as look how violent God is, right? I mean, here's this prophet who has all the power, right? He has God on his side, and some small boys come. They make fun of the fact that he has no hair, so he curses them, and two bears come out and slaughter the kids, right? You can look up, just look up Elisha and the bears, and you'll see videos of blood and gore and bodies of children being split. And people are like, see, don't make fun of God's people or they'll kill you. Good message, right? Encouraging. I would argue that this passage is actually teaching the exact opposite. That, unfortunately, the way we've translated it, the way we've understood it, hasn't really opened us to the true message of this passage, which is actually saying the very opposite of what some people say. So what I want to do today is walk through this passage and retranslate it, which sounds like fun, right? We're going to dive into some Hebrew, some history. It's good. Again, just as John said last week, please don't fall asleep, okay? We'll keep you awake. Trust me, we're going to get to a really fascinating spot. So, what I want to start with is at the end, I'm going to go, to go back through the passage with a new interpretation, a new translation. So the passage tells us that Elisha is going up to a city called Bethel. Now, Bethel is important because this literally means house of God. This is a city in Israel. And it wasn't, it wasn't just any city. It's a pretty important city. It was actually the center of a major north-south and east-west road. So Bethel kind of lied at the heart of this area. It was a pretty important place. And this is why King Jeroboam, who had come before this time, had in Bethel set up a fake or a false altar. If you can actually uh, go to that passage, 1 Kings chapter 12, it says, after seeking his vice, the king, this is Jeroboam, made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel, and the other in Dan. 
And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. So what happens is the people have the temple in Jerusalem, right, where you go to worship the one true God. But Jeroboam said, you know, they didn't have cars back then, right? So it's like, oh, I'm tired of walking all the way to Jerusalem. We're going to set up new gods. These are the gods that saved us. And one of those was housed in Bethel. So you can imagine as a child growing up in Bethel, even though you're in the land of Israel, the local religion is telling you that that God in Jerusalem isn't the true God. The true God is the golden one set up in your local town. So you could imagine that animosity could grow, right? You could think less of those people from Jerusalem because they serve a false God. But your God in Bethel, that is the true one. So just picture this. As a prophet of God is coming toward the city of Bethel, do you think the people are going to be very welcoming of him? No, because he serves a different God. They've been taught that that God isn't the God that brought them out of Egypt. It's their God in Bethel. So there's a sense in which Elisha here, in coming to Bethel, is coming to a pretty important city that worships a foreign God. So, now we need to get into the Hebrew. Are you guys ready? You warmed up? All right. So, these three words, katan, na'ar, and yaled, which Hebrew scholars everywhere just uh, passed out at my pronunciation, but (laughs) these three words are the words used in this passage to describe the human beings that come from Bethel and attack or revile Elisha. Now, in our Bible, like in the NIV that I have here, it says that some youths came out. I believe the translation on the screen had said small boys, right? And then at the end, it says that they came out of the woods, the two bears, and tore 42 of the youth. Now, here's the thing. I think this is a very poor translation of these words. Now, let me tell you why. So, na'ar, for example, can mean a lot of things, including young man, servant, or soldier. So right in the beginning of the passage when it says some youth or some small boys came out of the town, the second word, the small boys part, is this word na'ar, which can be translated as soldier. So for example, in this passage, we have a lot of Bible passages today. If you can go to the Genesis 41 passage. Now a young Hebrew, this is talking about Joseph, Now a young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he interpreted them for us, giving each man the interpretation of his dream. Now, can you guess which word is na'ar in this passage? Yes, the young, a young, right? So when it's describing Joseph, who we know was over 17 years old. Because the text tells us that he was 17, right, when he goes into slavery. So when it describes him as a young Hebrew who is a servant of the guard, well, he's a man. He's over 17 years old. So the same word used to describe Joseph when he's over 17 years old is the same word being used to describe these people that come out and revile Elisha. Now, on top of that, it says that they are some, uh, they're like small na'ar. Now, that's the word katan. Now, this is interesting because this is the word used in Genesis to describe the lesser light compared to the greater light. Now, I just want to ask you, did you guys take like physics, astronomy, those types of things in school, right? 
Yes? I know for some of you it's been a while, right? Think back. You, you, took, you took science, right? Now, this word used to describe the lesser light is the moon. How small is the moon? It, I would say small does not describe the moon. It is small in comparison to the sun, but it is actually a pretty big rock. This is the word used to describe these small boys. So what's interesting about this then is this is a word meant to communicate young or smaller in comparison to something that's bigger or older. So I think actually a really good translation of these small boys would be young men, young soldiers, young servants. Not exactly the like, four-year-olds, you know, you baldy, and then a bear tears them. No, these were youth. Now, I want you to think about this, because if you have 42 young men coming out of a town, this isn't a Sunday school class. This is a gang, right? This is a dangerous situation for Elisha. But it doesn't end there, because we haven't talked about Yaled yet. Now, Yaled is the word used at the end of the passage when it says the bear mauled 42 of the youth. Now, if you can go to 1 Kings, go to that next passage, chapter 12, verse 8. Do we have that one up there? There it is. Uh, 20. Okay, yeah, we'll do this one. That sounds good. Uh, so, Abraham, let me check that. Uh, do you have, do you guys have 1 Kings uh, 12, 8? There we go. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. The young men in this passage are old enough to give counsel to the king. So when we're talking about this bear mauling these youth, these were people that were old enough to give counsel, people that were old enough to be over 17 years old. So when I look at this, so far what we have is we have the prophet going to the city of Bethel, which was against his God, Yahweh, and a group of 42 young men come out and say, go on up, you bald head, which still is a little, you know, offensive on the surface, but go up baldy. Actually, yeah, I know, some, some people, you know, making fun of bald people is just too funny, right? It's too easy. But Sorry, I see some people laughing, right? I, f I feel bad for those people without hair, you know? I mean, it's mercy, grace. These things are important. So this idea of go up, bald head. You have to understand what has just happened in Elisha's life. Elisha had this man named Elijah as sort of his rabbi, his teacher, almost like a father figure to him. And right before this episode in Bethel, Elijah is taken up to heaven. Can you show them that passage, please? It is in 2 Kings 2.11. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Now this is interesting because the passage right before this one, people come up to Elisha and they say, Elisha, don't you know that God is going to take Elijah from over your head today. 
God is going to take him. Because there's a sense in which Elijah was over Elisha, right? He was protecting him. He was teaching him. He was guiding him. And the people come and say, they're going to, God is going to take Elijah from over you today. So Elijah goes up into heaven from above Elisha's head. So it's no coincidence that these, this gang of youths comes out and says, go on up, Baldy. What are they actually saying? They're threatening him. Why don't you follow your master up to heaven? And by calling him bald, they're pointing out who's going to protect you. Elijah's gone. You're all on your own. So you can picture the scene of Elisha fresh out on being on his own. 42 people who don't like his God come out and say, hey, why don't you follow him if you're so powerful? But don't forget, you're on your own. Where's Elijah now? Where is your God now? Are you getting a little different picture than making fun of a physical appearance and then bears coming out and killing small children? So Elisha responds by cursing these kids. And John did a great job talking about cursing last week. There's a sense when cursing, the word can actually be translated as slight, swift, or trifling. So by calling these youths out, or these young men, he's not cursing them in the sense of, I want you dead necessarily, but he's saying, you are outside of how God has called us to live. The way you think you are powerful as 42 young men, but in fact, you are not blessed in this action. You are the opposite of blessed, which is to be cursed. That they are actually very small, trifling. Because they think they have the power. And in a worldly sense, they do have the power, don't they? 42 young men could kill one prophet. So Elisha calls out to God, right? Now, here's the next really important part because the passage tells us in verse 24 that two bears came out and mauled 42 of the youth, right? Ripping them limb for limb, right? That's kind of the picture that we often get. But here's the Hebrew word for this idea of mauled. It is the Hebrew word baka, all right? Now, this word is fascinating because it is used in the book of 2 Kings chapter 3 in this way. Can you go to that next one for me, please? Second Kings chapter 3, it says, When the king of Moab saw the battle had gone against them, he took with him 700 swordsmen to baka, to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed. So the same word here is used, break through. It's also used in the book of Jeremiah and translated as breaching. So this word can mean many things. Cleave, divide, break through, rip up or tear. So there's many possible meanings. I mean, Hebrew is frustrating. Why couldn't they just decide one word, one meaning, right? Come on, guys. But there's a sense here in which this same word is used in the same book, not to mean to tear up, but to separate, to divide a force. So when the king sends his men and gets 700 swordsmen, what is the idea? There's a line of soldiers, and they are going to break through the line to get to the king. So what I think is happening here is when these bears come out, they don't kill 42 small children. What do they do? They separate the gang. 
Now, I want you just to think about this for a minute, because even from a logical perspective, there's two bears, right? 42 kids, if they were kids, as that story goes, right? How dumb do these 42 people have to be to get killed by two bears? I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen a bear attacking a person before, but, like, it's going to take more than just a second, right? Don't you think the other 40 would run away? This is why one commentator suggested perhaps the bear sought them out in their homes afterwards. They're like, <laughs> knock, 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 who's there? It, it's your Aunt Jemima. I can, see that, I can see that you're a bear. No, I'm just dressed in a bear costume. Okay, let me open the door. And then the bear kills him and goes, no, it, it, it's ridiculous, right? The idea that two bears could kill 42 people simply doesn't make sense unless they have a serious vendetta and GPS and all that stuff. <laughs> no, the idea is Elisha finds himself in a vulnerable situation. He is the one without power here. But see, real power in our world is what? If you have a lot of money, right? If you have a big military, if you've got the numbers. In the ancient world, if your army defeated another army in battle, that meant that your God was stronger than their God. Because, of course, we thought of gods being strong in terms of violence. Those who get to, to have the voice, those who get to control what happens, those are the people with power, the world says. So in this situation, the people with the power are the 42 men who are in their home turf for another god, and there's one man prophet coming through, and they threaten him, why don't you go on up? Who is going to protect you? So this story, rather than being about a fickle prophet and a fickle god who doesn't like to get made fun of the lack of hair, we often think, well, God's the one with the power, and it's the children without the power. Actually, in the story, it's completely flipped. The 42 people have all the power, and Elisha has none in the eyes of the world, right? Because see, what the Bible then shows is actually, even though Elisha had no worldly power, God is always on the side of the oppressed, God is always on the side of the person without the power in that situation. So Elisha may not have a gang with him, but he has God with him. And the men who thought they had all the power actually had no real power at all. See, God loves everybody, but God is always going to come down on the side of justice. God is always going to come down on the side of the powerless. And we know this from throughout Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, and we know that this is true because God even goes to be on the side of Israel's enemies when Israel be. God doesn't say, oh, you're my people, so it doesn't matter that you treat the poor poorly. It doesn't matter that you're going after other gods. It doesn't matter that you've trusted in your military. Oh, it doesn't matter that the alien and the foreigner aren't welcome against you. I'm your God, so I'll protect you. No, he says, if you don't stop that, I'm going to take a foreign military and completely wipe you out is on the side of those who have no power, who have no voice. So as I thought about what does this mean for us today, I think there's two really important points. And I think the second one we'll spend a little 
couple more minutes on. But the first one is, when you feel powerless, when you have no power in a situation, when you feel like I have no voice, like an injustice is being done against me, you are not abandoned by God in that moment. You are not on your own in that moment. When 42 men of a gang surround you and say, who are you? Where is your God? Where is your worldly power? That's actually the very time God says, I identify with you. Because what is more vulnerable than Jesus being crucified on a cross after being mocked and beaten and set out for the world to see? God says, when you're powerless, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm with you there. I know what that's like. And I'm with you in that moment. Brothers and sisters, worldly power is not what matters. That is not what God looks for to say, whoa, you're successful. You've got a huge education. You've got a huge house. You've got a ton of money. You're doing great. I'm on your side. It's not to say God is against the side of someone with power. He's against the abuse of that. There's a call to steward what we've been given. And so this leads me into the second point, that the invitation of this passage is always to be found on the side of the weak and powerless. That our invitation is, when there is a situation in the world, always be found on the side of Elisha, not the side of the 42 youth that have formed the gang. Because it's easy to form that side. You can look at it and you say, I can tell who's going to win this fight. Because I can tell you, if, if you were a betting person, you know, like there's someone standing out to the side, who you got in this fight? Well, I think I'll take the 42 to the 1 until the bears come out and separate the crowd. And God says, no, you always want to be on the side of the one without the voice, without the power. So if you are a person who has wealth, who has means, who has power, be careful. This doesn't mean God is against you. But you have a responsibility to wield that to, in a way that brings justice and good news for all. I don't know who said it, but it, so I'm going to quote somebody. I don't know who it is, but I just don't want to, you know, I don't want to claim it for myself, right? If it's not good news for everybody, it's not good news. Be a person of good news for everybody. There's a man named Peter Rollins, and uh, at Man Cave, we, we watched a video of him, and he does this really fascinating thing. He, he, he's a philosopher, and he talks all about his theology, and he says, you know, sometimes people ask me, Pete, you know, do you deny the resurrection? And Peter Rollins stands there, and he says, you know, I have to come clean. He's like, I need to be consistent. I don't want to be hypocritical. He's like, yeah. He goes, everybody who knows me, everyone who's ever worked with me, my family, my friends, they can all tell you that I deny the resurrection. You can feel in the room a discomfort, right? And he says, every time I do not speak for those who have lost their voice. Every time I walk by someone who's powerless and don't do anything to come alongside them. Any time I participate in injustice that puts some up and others down, I deny the resurrection. And then he says, occasionally, when I cry with those who have no more tears to shed, when I bring a voice to those who have been voiceless, when I come alongside the powerless and work for justice, I affirm the resurrection. 
And I love that because he's taking it out of the mind and saying it's not just about what you proclaim to believe. The way you live proclaims what you actually believe. What you actually affirm or deny isn't just in here, it's out in the way you interact with others. And so this passage of Elisha, God doesn't just sit in heaven and say, Elisha, I'm on your side, you're okay, man. No, he does something to say, I'm going to split up that crowd and invite them to realize that what they're doing is off. In our lives, we are invited not to just say, hey, you know what, yeah, I want to be on the side of the powerless. We can confuse having a lot of knowledge about something for doing something. The invitation here is to say, God isn't just a God who says, I am for justice. God is a God who always acts for justice. And that is our invitation as his body on earth to be the hands and feet of justice. Even when we have no power ourselves, even when we feel like we're the powerless ones, God says continue to serve, to love, to act justly, kindly, with mercy, and I am on your side, and what they meant for evil, I will use for good. We always want to be found on the side of justice. So the invitation is to join in what God is already doing in the world. Because our God is a God of the oppressed, and we are a people who follow in those footsteps. So brothers and sisters, as you go about your week this week, may you have eyes to see and ears to hear. Where is the powerless today? Where is an injustice being done today? Where is a person who has no voice today? And how can I not come in as the Savior, but how can I come alongside them to be the good news? Doing something. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness and love. We thank you, God, that even when we were your enemy, you didn't abandon us, but you joined us. You lived for us. You died for us. You resurrected for us, Lord. We believe that the tomb is empty, and we are resurrection people. We thank you, Lord, that even when in the eyes of the world we have no power, it doesn't matter because you are the one on the ultimate throne of the universe and you always act for love and justice. We thank you for the story of Elisha. That even though it can be confusing on the surface, we thank you for the beautiful meaning that is inside of it, that is still speaking today. So Lord, may we join in those without power. May we be people of justice, not just knowing about it, Lord, but living it out a voice to those without one, a presence to those without community, a tear for those who have no more to shed. May we affirm your resurrection, Lord, with our very lives. In Jesus' name, amen.